Aloha. Hello. 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 <laughs> Welcome to episode 26 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. Um, starting things off officially today. Isn't that amazing? It is. You're right out of the gate with that, too. You didn't even have to be prompted. I know, right? I just figured, what the hell? We usually have a little time to warm up, but we don't need it anymore. Let's roll, bitches. <laughs> we don't need it anymore. Um, Another one of those episodes where we decide to give the greatest year of all time and Oscar is about a half an hour of time. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, then Godfather we'll just 2 rush won. through it real quick. Just, we'll just list the movies. Couple list of the winners. Chinatown, Schmeinatown. <laughs> Harry and Tonto. Actually, we should say Craig gets a... You know, the the badge of honor today for watching Harry and Tonto, which I'm afraid I actually looked for but could not find. Really? I get a 45% badge of honor because I watched 45 <laughs> minutes of it before we had to start, before we hooked up for the podcast. Oh, that's So great. I watched a little bit of it. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. Yeah, I've never seen it, I'm sorry to say. Goddamn movie made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> I was surprised. It's really pretty good. You know what I always thought in my mind? I kind of always had in my mind that, that Harry and Tonto was sort of like Turner and Hooch. So maybe, <laughs> maybe Harry and Tonto were, were, were a crime-fighting duo, you know, and uh, detectives or something. Or maybe there's like, uh, what is it, Wallace and Gromit, sort of like that maybe. Or like but it wasn't movie. at all. It was really more like, um, hard to describe. It's, it's almost like Wendy and Lucy, isn't it, Craig? Yeah, yeah, except an old man instead of a young woman. Uh -huh. what, what surprised me about it, um, as I was watching, I was thinking, man, Paul Mazursky was such a young guy to be making a movie like this, which is very sort of about being old. And that, But I didn't realize he was into his 40s by the time he directed it. He got a pretty late start as a director with Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice after years and years of being an actor and, and a writer. So he he he'd had some experience under his belt before he before he took this one on, and it shows. I think another movie I've never seen, Bob Carroll and Ted and Alice, which I want to see now because the only I realize the only movie, the only Mazursky movie that I've seen is a, an unmarried woman. So that's you know I'm impressed with him. Did you see um, Down and Out in Beverly Hills in the eighties? Uh, yeah, I did see that. I forgot about that remake of the Renoir comedy. Um, oh, yeah. I just watched that one recently. I didn't think that much of it at the time. It was a pretty big deal, but it, it came off as kind of shrill and annoying this last time around. But maybe I was just in a shrill and an annoying kind of mood. <laughs> well, he's one of those directors I'm surprised that I don't know more about because he really had a had a, plat a, a really great peak there in the mid-70s where he did like three or four really important movies that got a lot of attention and got a, and then really pretty influential. Oh, and then he disappeared. And then he just... Sorry, go ahead. I'm just, and then he just disappeared. You know, he just kind of dropped out of sight. Maybe because I don't know exactly why. Did maybe because these weren't the type of movies that really made a lot of money around the same time when movies, when that became the most important thing. Right. Yeah. You know. Yeah. More, more of a, a smaller character-driven director at a time when spectacle was starting to take over. You mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. These were uh, Harry and Tonto was really a character um, study. Was. Yeah, and uh, um, it's surprising, too, that he didn't ever get an uh, an Oscar nomination. I just assumed that he had 
for some reason, because as so many of his films are sort of, even though they're not necessarily on the tip of people's tongues anymore, they still seem to be really much a part of the 70s, and yet he's not a name that comes up in the Oscar rolls. Obviously, Does he hang case, out with... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead. I was going to say, obviously, in this case, Art Carney uh, did actually win for Best Actor this year, but um, that's... Uh, offhand, that's that's the the most the most uh, awarding he's he's gotten. And it's funny because he, I know we're gonna probably go into talking about this, but um, he Jack Nicholson was expected to win, and nobody thought Art Carney was. And in fact, Ellen Burstyn, who won Best Actress, was so convinced she wasn't gonna win that she didn't even show up. Um, she didn't even think she had a shot. And then when she heard that that. Uh, that he won, then she she perked up a bit and thought maybe she had a chance. But um, everybody thought Jack Nicholson had it in the bag for Chinatown. Funny, isn't it? But yeah, it is. You know, and I've always I just always assumed that he should have. I never really thought that. I, I always thought that Art Carney was probably one of those career awards, which in a way it was. But it's not as if Art Carney had a had a long film career. He was mostly known for television, right? Wasn't he? In the honeymooners with Jack, yeah. Jackie Gleason. No, this was his really. This was his turn. This was his one dramatic turn to try to do something else. You know, typical your typical Oscar Beatty role. On mm. the other hand, I get the feeling he's incredibly well liked within the industry, and I think that uh, you know there was probably at that time, believe it or not, resentment for Jack Nicholson. Um, it's hard to imagine a time when they didn't revere him as king of Hollywood, but I would imagine that that the two side by side, Art Carney was the better better deal because not only was his character likable, um, he himself was likable, and his roots go pretty deep. And let's face it, everybody loved him from um, you know the honeymoon from the honeymooners, yeah. Uh-huh. And the so. thing about I, I sort of went into it expecting exactly what Ryan was expecting that it would just be sort of a Pat on the back. We like this guy. Nice job, old man. Now get off the stage and <laughs> let's pay, pay more attention to the young people. But it's actually a really, really good performance. And it sort of kicked off a whole decade of pretty interesting stuff from him in terms of the movies. Like you said, up to that point, he was known primarily for the honeymooners. But after um, Harry on Tonto, he did The Late Show and he did. Well, they're not coming to me right now, but he was he he was much a much higher profile presence in in movies from that point on. So it wasn't it wasn't an end of the career kind of award. It was almost it turned out to be almost a beginning of a new career. That's great. For him. That's great. And he's also uh, he's just he's so beloved. I mean, think about him in Twilight Zone. He's in one of the best Twilight Zones. You know, where he plays the Santa Santa Claus. He's mm-hmm. just great. You know, I can't can't say anything bad about Art Carney. And you can't say that that Nicholson was particularly robbed. I mean, he was great. Al Pacino was great. Dustin Hoffman was great. You know, Albert Finney. Well, Albert Finney for Murder on the Orient Express was probably typically Albert Finney, but uh, he was better than the movie, I think. Yeah. So they were all great. They were all great, and in any case like that, it can often tip to the sentimental favorite, which. Art Connie was, but I love it that it was. It didn't signal the end of his career. And we talked about Lenny a couple of uh, weeks ago, and and uh, Dustin Hoffman was also great. So I do think that when you have five outstanding performances, that the Academy can go in all different directions. And so you have one of those years when mm, it's right. not as if anyone it wins by a huge margin, but they win by just a small amount of votes. 
uh, they're just tipping one way or the other. That's so yeah. true, yeah. You could almost see Hoffman, Nicholson, and Pacino sort of canceling each other out because they're three of our greatest actors sort of in the prime of their careers. Yeah. And all three of them pretty much knocked out of the park. So and they would have... They would have attracted the the votes of the younger uh, members. Right, and split them up. But Mm -hmm. I will say this. um, They didn't like Chinatown. They gave it one Oscar uh, for writing original screenplay. And that, to me, smacks of your typical, um, like Lincoln or whatever, a movie that heads into the Oscar race that has a lot of support from the critics and from the public. But it's just not warm, fuzzy enough for them. And it was very, very strange and ambiguous, Chinatown, you know, which is why it's one of the greatest films ever made. But you know what I mean? Like it just didn't have – it didn't have any sort of – you know, it was John Huston, you know, sleeping with his granddaughter and shooting, you know, Faye Dunaway through the eye at the end of the movie. It was pretty wild. That's not Academy. Well, it it surprises me when I – when I look at when I just look at the movies on paper and compare the greatness of Chinatown to the greatness of The Godfather Part Two, and it's like, yeah, The Godfather Part Two is a is a masterpiece, but geez, just a couple of years before, the first one had already won, so it kind of felt like it it, it, it surprises me that it that it did so well again, simply because of that. Not because it's not great, and not because it doesn't improve upon the original, but just it kind of seems like they would have been a little godfathered out at that point and would have rather have have rewarded something like Chinatown, but obviously the the love just wasn't quite there. Well, it's interesting because, um, you know, the first Godfather was kind of like Argo. It was sort of like a a half, you know, half limp dick trying to, you know, <laughs> bring it off. It's sort of like it just didn't quite cut it, you know. It wasn't the 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 full shebang. He didn't, for for instance, Francis Ford Coppola never won his Best Director Oscar. It was sort of just a half win. It won only three, and it won Best Picture. And you know, Cabaret was this close to beating it. And the second time, it was sort of unequivocal. It was sort of like a slam dunk, you know. Okay. He did it again. It made all this money. It got all this critical acclaim. It's brilliant. Fine. Give him everything, you know. Coppola <laughs> yeah, I don't think they were really prepared for what Coppola or who he was yet. But by the, t- by the time 1974 uh, uh, rolled around, it was obvious because not only was he nominated for the God, not only was the Godfather Part Two nominated, but The Conversation right. was also nominated for Best Picture. When does that ever happen? Two movies by the same director nominated for Best Picture in the same year. Well, it's Soderbergh. Pretty Completely rare. different movies. They couldn't, couldn't be more different. For... Um, Traffic and, and Aaron Brockovich. Right. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. But I think that's only happened twice, maybe. If we have to dig through Academy history, it may have happened before. But um. the, I think sometimes there's like a buyer's regret thing where like the week or the month after the Oscars, the, the Academy members look back at what they did. And, and as, as a godfather uh, rose in esteem for the next two years after 1972, they might have started to think, why the hell didn't we give it more than three Oscars? Right. And they were happy to have a chance again in 1974 to to make up, to, to in a way make up for the fact that they gave all the Oscars to Cabaret in 72. They often do that when they sort of, like for instance, if, if uh, Ben Affleck comes back with a, um, a Holocaust movie, uh, you know, George Clooney gains 50 pounds and plays, you know, a Jew setting free, um, you know, in 
<laughs> and that it makes a hundred million dollars, you know, it'll come back and win a you know a whole shitload of Oscars because they're just gonna you know they'll confirm what they what they you know kind of moved toward earlier. But they they only gave Argo three Oscars and Ben Affleck didn't win. He wasn't even nominated. So he's set up for one of those kind of Godfather two esque wins when he comes back and makes something else. If he ever makes anything half as good as The Godfather Part Two, I will eat a bug on camera, <laughs> and I'll post well, it on YouTube. You know, I rewatched The Godfather Two again, and I just that movie, my God! I mean, the last forty-five minutes, I'll say, as Michael Corleone is just getting rid of everybody who ever cared for him. You know, he really isolates himself in such a frightening, cold, sad way. You know. And the last shot is just him sitting on the bench. And then the movie ends juxtaposed with The Godfather 1 with um, Marlon Brando, you know, chasing his little grandchild around the, the tomato plants. He dies of a heart attack. But he's when he dies, he's dying. He's ending his Godfather reign and ending the movie as this beloved family man in crime. Very powerful. As much a murderer as Michael Corleone, but... But Michael's soul has emptied out. That's the At thing least, is, is the is veto started with nothing, absolutely nothing, even less than nothing. As a little boy all alone in this country made something of himself and something for his family and did it by shady means, but it was all for good purposes. Whereas Michael started with everything and pretty much sold his soul in the process of, of losing it all. And it just... It's it's chilling. It's one of the most chilling, and and, and not to mention having his own brother murdered. I mean, that's come what on. I was about to say. Yeah, Vito was all about family, and Michael became anything but all about family. He became almost anti-family. He was anti anti his wife, anti his brother. You know, uh, anybody that got in his way, it didn't matter whether they were family or not. As opposed to Vito, you know, family is everything. Right. Ironic because he spent the first movie trying to do everything to avoid becoming his father. And then in the end, he ended up doing what his father did, but betraying everything that his father stood for. Yeah, it's sad. You know, it's sad when they cut back to the old family scene and, you know, they're saying, you know, he's saying he wants to go in the army or, you know, he wants to join the service. He doesn't want to stay in the family. He doesn't want to be part of this life. And when the father comes in and they all run in to, to wish him a happy birthday and Michael's just sitting there alone at the table and that's bef- right before the end. There's so many great um, transitions or dissolves in that movie um, showing, the, the, showing the modern day Michael Corleone, the head of the family, and flashing back to Vito who was just his polar opposite. Also- but still the parallels, but the parallels and the contrast between then and now showing the way, um, uh, the big, the way that things began and the way things were ending or the way things had culminated. God, that great scene with um, Robert. First of all, Robert De Niro, what a hot piece of meat. Can we just say, uh-huh. damn, he was good looking. But um, <laughs> I love the scene where he's, you know, he's trying to talk that guy into renting the room to um, to, to, to this woman. And he wants to throw her out because she has a noisy dog and, and he doesn't know who Vito Corleone is. And so they're walking down the street and he's saying, oh, please just do it for me. You know, you won't regret it. It'll be a nice favor. He's like, here. 
He gives him a whole bunch of money. He says, here's six months in advance. She gets to keep the dog. And he's like, no, no, she can't keep the dog. She can't keep the dog. <laughs> and then um, he says, he says, yes, she can. It's a nice favor. Just ask to ask around the neighborhood. Just ask about me. <laughs> See what people say. <laughs> and, he, and he hands him the money. It's just a sweet, really nice little exchange. <laughs> and the guy comes back after he found out who Vito was. And he's, you know, he's clumsily opening the door. And he, I want to give you your money back. <laughs> and he's like, bowing to him and apologizing to him and saying of course she can stay as long as she wants you know terrified of what it's, is going to happen to him right but he, at, at the same time even though that they were they were mobsters in 1920 uh they were they became they they got their power uh, through 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 favors instead of through threats and revenge right and, right, it was what they, was what they did it, for the community, and not, not, not the fear that they spread. Right, mm-hmm. and and they always, you know, mobster lore is such that in the old days it wasn't about drugs. Well, we know this from that movie Gamora or whatever. It it, uh, it changed to to where they 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 bought in, you know they traded in drugs, and people like Vito Corleone completely disapproved of that that mm-hmm. evolution of the mob. And and Godfather Two really shows it beautifully. It shows the changing of the guard and how different it became. Um, once it became, you know, the world of drugs and hookers and, <laughs> you know, that was it. Then um, it kind of lost its soul. You know, it sounds crazy to romanticize the mob, but I think The Godfather does a really good job of showing, you know, what it, organized crime was in the beginning and what it became. Shows the it, good and the bad. Right. And what it became in the 1950s and what it uh, continued. And I think one of the, uh, one of the most interesting things that, uh, that all, that the whole trilogy does is to, is to show how the, how organized crime is mixed up with politics and how politics is just as corrupt in its own way in some, some ways even worse. Mm. Somehow sleazier. Yeah, really, huh? The, the senators and everybody that they were, that they had influenced and the, 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 Instead of instead of doing favors for individuals and for the community, they were doing favors for um, the corporate interests and for, for their own gain. Yeah, and I love I love because it's the seventies. You have these richly drawn women. Um, the one strong you know opposing force to Michael Corleone is, is his wife, you know Kay, who who totally has that great scene where she stands up to him, you know, and abortion, Michael. I had it was a son, and I had it killed because all of this must end. And he just looks at her like you know that. Well, that's it. You know, she's she's now become nothing to him. You know, as as Fredo will soon become. You're nothing to me now. <laughs> He's so cold. Dead to me. Yeah, you're dead to me. You, yeah. If you want to see our mother, I need to know a day in advance. <laughs> horrible and then he just walks to think by how different the movie might have been because by the time by the time that they saw what a success the godfather was becoming they knew already that they there was had to be a sequel and marlon brando would have been young enough to play himself as a younger man yeah he didn't but want he, to do but it, he wanted though. too much money and so right. they decided we'll have, we'll have to go back even further we'll have to go back before he's when he was so young he's unrecognizable and how what a great fortuitous um thing that was to have happen but to bring and de niro is so great he's so great you know you you think god you know how could how could that guy um that we know so well how could he have uh 
he wins the Oscar, doesn't he? He won for that. Yeah, supporting actor. So you're thinking, how could he just brand new on the scene have won supporting actor? But you have to remember back to when people had never seen Robert De Niro, really. You know, they'd never seen him on screen. And now we've seen him. We know what he can do. You know, I mean, to me, it's it's a great part in everything. I'm not saying it isn't. Um, he really had no competition, particularly. Uh, maybe Lee Strasberg was could have been, or Fred Astaire. You know, sentimental favorites. Um, Fred Astaire is the typical though career achievement award. He was not good in that movie, and that was a terrible movie. That's all I have to say about that. And the size of the, the role <laughs> itself is so it was so trivial in in Towering Inferno to think that I mean it, there was just had to be no competition because De Niro had the title role. You know, he was even though he was supporting actor nominee, he he had the title role, right. shared the yeah. title, role. and he he spoke all completely in Italian. I think he learned Italian for the movie. In fact. Um, and he's great. But, I mean, just imagine seeing Robert De Niro early on, that early on in his career. I mean, they'd seen him in Mean Streets, right? He'd already been in Mean Streets by then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, and totally opposite what he plays in The Godfather, obviously. Completely different characters. Yeah, it's almost unrecognizable. Yeah. Totally. He's so restrained and just kind of confident and laid back in Godfather too. Yeah. It's amazing. It really is. It's really amazing. God, that guy. Uh, I still can't get out of my head, though, the, the the amazingness of Coppola because, I mean, most directors would be happy to have The Godfather 1 as the pinnacle of their career, and then that would be the end of it, and it would be like a slow decline after that. And he tops an arguable masterpiece with an even better, more ambitious, bigger film in the same year that he does another film. I know we already talked about the fact that the conversation came out as well, but it just, I can't get my head around that. It's just incredible to me. I can't well, you know, either. he had written the conversation in, in the 60s. He had, the conversation was a pet project of his that he never could get financing for. He had written it in the mid-60s. It was always something he had thought about and, and worked on for years and years, but he had never been able to get anyone to back him on it. And he wanted, I think, to, he didn't want to be the godfather guy. He didn't want to be just the Godfather guy. He wanted to show he could do other things, and this would be the perfect buffer to sort of uh, wedge type thing to wedge in between the two Godfather films, just to show that he could do other things. Yeah, because the family had a lot of buffers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, it's true. You know, when I was watching that movie, I was just thinking, this is so accomplished, this film. It's ridiculous. You just don't see movies like that anymore. Mm that stretch and span so many years and go to so many different locations. For one thing, movies have just become too expensive, I think, and therefore they have to be shitty because they have to have a return on their investment and they have to sell it to a bunch of dumb fucks. So, you know. The Godfather 2 can't have been inexpensive, but they were able to to lavish – uh, budget on it because they knew that it was a guaranteed success because of the on the heels of the first one, and so it it wasn't like it was coming from nothing. It well, was able to yeah. it was able to 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 get a budget together that to to do it justice. It ended up costing more than Godfather One and making a third of what Godfather One. Oh, is that right? Wow. Funnily, it was, yeah. still it only cost thirteen and it made one hundred and three during its original run worldwide. What is the matter with audiences though that it, that that they that they uh, lost interest. I don't think they lost interest. I think it just cost more, and so the. Oh, was, I see what you mean. Because I, but I don't know. I don't know what the total um, box office was for both. And so, I, and I also, Godfather One was less depressing than Godfather Two. That's the amazing mm. thing about it. That that's the amazing thing about how different it is in Academy history that a movie like that could win so big, and that 
so many people went to see it and love it still to this day when you consider what a dark ending that is. You know, that man's soul is emptied out. There is no upside. He kills Fredo. <laughs> Poor well, four Fredo. of the best picture nominees that year were had were really pretty dark. Chinatown was extreme. You yeah, know, how could you get any darker than that? And the conversation was really bleak and dark. And Lenny was bleak and dark. I think so with, with um, Michael Corleone, you sort of, uh, you know, I feel like with um, Chinatown was sort of Polanski's uh, just, you know, the world is fucked. You know, the humanity is fucked. There is no hope. You know, and I feel like with Godfather 2, it doesn't really say that. You you end up feeling, even though he's a cold motherfucker, you end up feeling for Michael Corleone at the end. You know, you feel sad for him. Um, mm. I think with Godfather, it's sort of like the fix is in. I mean, with Chinatown, it's like the fix is in. Forget it. <laughs> Forget Hopeless. it, Jake. It's Chinatown. It's, you know. Right, There's so many lines of dialogue throughout Chinatown to to reinforce that idea. When when I think one character asked him what he what 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 he used to do in Chinatown, and he says as little as possible. <laughs> you know that you're just better off doing as little as possible, and that mm -hmm. way just you know skate through and and because there's nothing you can do about it anyway. Keep yeah. your head down and stay out of trouble. And we've talked before about the fact that I mean it's so unusual that, that the movie is called Chinatown, but but there's no it doesn't it's only it only takes place in Chinatown in really the last five minutes of the movie. And so you go through the whole movie wondering what, where does Chinatown come into all this? And it's because Chinatown is a, it's a state of mind. It's not a place. It's a yeah, state of mind. Absolutely. I love that he's such an, he's so arrogant and silly at the beginning. You know, he's telling that joke about the, what's the matter with him? He fucks just like a Chinaman. <laughs> you know, that right. joke he's telling us as he meets, um, Faye Dunaway, but you know, and she walks in and she catches him and you know, He's so he stumbles in so arrogantly, thinking he can fix everything. When he's in so over his head, he has no idea who he's dealing with, and he never just takes her word for it. He just keeps making it worse. He keeps trying to make it better. He keeps making it worse. There's that line in the movie too, because when you know he used to, I guess he used to be a cop in Chinatown, and someone asked him why he. I think Faye Dunaway asks him in bed, "What what what happened in Chinatown? Why did you leave?" And he said he tried to to prevent someone from being hurt, and what he did instead was making sure that she got hurt. Mm, right. So it's all this foreshadowing about the this like he can't escape that fate, and the more he tries to to fix things, the worse he makes it. You know, he really should just keep if he would just keep his nose out of. Literally, literally keep his nose out of it. <laughs> literally. It, would, it wouldn't, it would, you know, maybe he wouldn't cause so much trouble. Right. I love that when the film starts, he's kind of a scumbag. You know, Sasha talked about the scene where he's telling the dirty joke and, and, yeah. and makes a fool of himself, but he's not a very reputable human being at that point. He's a private detective who makes his money busting dirty old mm. men who are cheating on their wives, which is not a, a career that anybody's going to look upon. Uh, too favorably, and yet he, just by comparison to all of the other evil people around him, he becomes the sort of knight in shining armor by comparison. He ends up failing miserably, but he's he's more honorable and decent than anybody else in the film. I love movies like that where the character finds their way halfway through and they become honorable. Um, I love that about his character, and you know, you are sad to see that it just, it all ends in disaster anyway. And he's right back where he started in Chinatown. And Robert Town, Chinatown is still considered 
you know, arguably the best screenplay ever written. It's certainly up there. I know that. It's an original screenplay for one thing, and you don't see that kind of detail and backstory with original screenplays at all, you know? You see, like, um, you know, the Tarantino school of writing, which is, you know, snappy, and David Mamet, kind of snappy dialogue, make it up as you go along, improvise. That's great. That has its own place. But these carefully plotted, uh, you know, la- you know, laden with symbolism, you know, uh, with deeper meaning and every character has an objective and every character has, you know, flaws and subtext. I mean, just the little tiny detail of Faye Dunaway having a flaw in her iris. Oh, I know. I know that, you know, I, we talked last week that about the Fincher's, uh, commentary, uh, track that we were, we were going to try to listen to maybe. And I found my disc and I was going to listen to it, but I started watching the movie and I thought, I'm not ready to listen to the commentary yet. I'm still discovering things about this movie on my own and I don't need, I don't want anybody to explain it to me yet. <laughs> I don't want it. I don't want to be influenced by other people's explanations. I'm still finding things out about it. And I was struck the last time I watched it two or three days ago, how many, how much symbolism there are, there is and how about, about, the, the eyes and about about seeing yeah. um, when he has this car accident, he knocks one of the lenses out of his sunglasses. So he's like he's got an eye patch on curly gets a black eye. They talk about she talked about the flaw in her iris, like you say. And then as you talked about, you know, her fate at the end of the movie is to have her eyes shot out and the glasses, you know, yeah, the glasses, glasses, right, the glasses yeah. very bad for glass. And all this stuff about seeing, like looking through the binoculars and looking through the camera lens and the reflections on the lenses of the camera. It's so much that, like you said, it's just so layered. You just don't see that kind of Mm-mm. kind of detail in movies very often. You really don't. And, yes, it rightly won for, you know, the Oscar for screenplay. It deserved so many more. You know, unfortunately went up against China or Godfather 2. But the other thing, the other heavy symbolism in the movie is water and fish and a professor at NYU who had at the time either taught a lecture or an entire class on the, the Chinatown screenplay um, in the writing department, I remember, went on and on about water because it was sort of like um, Noah Cross, sort of the, you know, the father of everything. And it was all about like, you know, the soup, the embryos, the you know, what do you call it? The amoeba. The tide pool. The, the tide, tide pool. pool. His, the the tide lens, pool. The, those glasses were found in a tide pool behind the house. Yeah. Behind the mansion. And yeah. then there's the water that they withhold, you know, that mm-hmm. comes flooding out. And then there's the weird club that has like the water symbolism on it. And it's a town that's being falsely deprived of water, you know, and, and LA is a desert. It's not really supposed to be there. It's really, um, it can only survive if they if they fl- if they pump water in from somewhere else. If you can't bring the water to the town, you have to bring the town to the water. Right. Yeah. So that was also part of the symbolism. And the fact that it's historically based is so interesting too. That this really happened with with instead of Mulray, it was Mulholland. Yeah. That it all has historical basis in fact, and that and that water, um, it was a commodity. It was and and it, and it was it was it was a it was a, it was a Something that people had to have, and it was you, and you'd have a city, you have to have the water, it's like you're addicted to it. So, in a way, it's, it's like they were dealing water in the same way that the Godfather, too, was dealing drugs. Hmm. And it didn't matter to Noah Cross who he killed and who had who he had to murder in order to 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 claim um, his his profits from that. Yeah, it's amazing how steeped, really, in, in real LA history that it is, even though the names were changed to protect the guilty. I mean, you you 
you drive along Mulholland Drive or you drive out through the valley and you see streets named after the old orchards that were there and you don't mm-hmm. see orange trees any longer, but you know that once upon a time, that's all this was out here. It was one giant, one giant orchard and now it's a bunch of strip malls connected by dusty, dirty <laughs> pavement, wa- you know. Wasn't Nicholson's house on Mulholland, the house to where Polanski got in trouble? Yeah. Off of it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all of them lived up yeah. on Mulholland. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to think about the roots, you know, of, of foundation of, of our cultures in, in Chinatown and in Godfather 2. Both of them, Godfather 1 and Godfather 2, you know, both of them are really defining the past, present, and future um, of our culture. The Chinatown is very much about L.A., you know, in that kind of noirish way. Like, you know, I love the way that it, it plays with a film noir structure, you know, because he's not a chump who gets done over by the woman as he would be in a noir movie. You would think that he always, he thinks that way all the way along, that Faye Dunaway is trying to pull one over on him. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that that's not the truth. You know, he's a chump, but he's a chump because of his own making. He's not... He's not she, she's the victim instead of the femme fatale. Right. He's in over his head, but he has no idea to how extent, to, to what extent, and to whom. And that's Noah Cross says that to him. He says, "You have no idea what you're dealing with." <laughs> that's so creepy. You know, you think you think you know what you're doing, but you have no idea what you're dealing with. And he didn't. He had. He didn't have any idea. And you're right. He was so cocky throughout the whole movie, thinking that he knew where it was, where he was headed with it. But he was on totally the wrong track. Even yeah. when he confronts her at the end, he thinks he's got it all figured out. And she talks to him, and she tells him the the reality of it. And he owns and, the police. He owns the police. I love it because it also, to me, it's so about Hollywood also. It's not just, you know, it can be taken in so many different ways, but the incestuous power of Hollywood, it really reminds me of, you know, the, the, Mm -hmm. the higher ups, they're all just kind of inbreeding (laughs) and controlling things. It's so much bigger than that, but there is an element to old Hollywood too about it because it's John Huston playing Noah Cross, Mm -hmm. old Hollywood. Who 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 did one of the seminal film noir of all time with the Maltese Falcon? Mm-hmm. Is where he got his beginning, right? Um, also, is we tr- sometimes we try to t- talk about the the films in the context of the times, the current events, and the the uh, the news that's happening at the time. And this was all on the heels of of of, uh, of Watergate and Nixon having to resign. Mm-hmm. So everyone was pretty much fed up with corruption. And, and and writers were were getting this out of their system, to to express them in different ways in movies about the, the the corruption of America. Right, absolutely. And in fact, um, just bringing it back to the Oscar ceremony briefly, it was a, it wasn't a very exciting chapter in Inside Oscar. I have to admit, nineteen seventy four. But one of the more interesting parts was how they dealt with the political strains. Um. The guy who directed the documentary Hearts and Minds, which won the Oscar, which is about Vietnam, got mm-hmm. up on stage and, and wrote, read this, um, this message, which said, Please transmit to all our friends in America our recognition of all that they have done on behalf of peace and for the application of Paris Accords on Vietnam. These actions serve the legitimate interests of the American people and the Vietnamese people. Greetings of friendship to all American people. But the guy said, at the microphone, he said, it is ironic that we're here at a time just before Vietnam is about to be liberated. I will now read a short wire. 
and I have been asked to read by the Vietnamese people from the delegation of Viet Cong, blah, blah, blah. But the interesting thing was it was not received very well. And I can imagine because so many people, because of what the media was telling people back then, um, they, they saw the Vietnamese as the enemy. It didn't even, they didn't even distinguish really between the North and South Vietnamese. We were just over there fighting in Vietnam, and it was unclear uh, who, who we were fighting or what for, but we knew. But so many people in the audience must have thought, why are you reading a message from the enemy? Right. And I, then he says, and then Coppola gets up to accept his award. He says, um, I almost won a couple of years ago for the first half of the same picture, but that's not why we did part two. And then he and then um, Frank Sinatra comes out. Bob Hope apparently was really pissed off about the statement, the Vietnam, and he said, "If you don't read this, this um, what do you call it? If you don't read this disclaimer, I will." Bob Hope, can you imagine raging backstage? Mm. <laughs> and so Sinatra comes out and says, "Ladies and gentlemen, to deviate for a second, I've been asked by the Academy to make the following statement regarding a statement made by a winner. The Academy is saying we are not responsible for any political references made on the program, and we are sorry that any had taken place this evening. And now to present the writing award. Wow. And we give the writing award to to Robert Town. Because I you guess know, they have to consider... It goes back to the beginning of the 70s that we had talked about before, that the, the whole old old Hollywood versus new Hollywood tension, the young and the old and the conservatives versus the, the liberals. It, it was still raging in the middle of the 70s. Mm. And not only among the members of the Academy, but they must have been, especially people like Bob Hope, must have been aware of the audience um, having a, a huge percentage of the, of the population of America being conservative, right. who were right. thinking that, that we shouldn't be even be leaving Vietnam, we should keep fighting. You know, there were probably people who were mad that we were leaving, that it was going to be over, and that we were, it was going to be the first time that America had been, like, defeated. And, and they didn't want to alienate half of the audience, half of America from the Oscars. Right, and that's still the case today. Uh, um, even though it's it's basically all all but accepted that it's a liberal <laughs> establishment with liberal <laughs> views, I guess back in the seventies it was you know you had you had um, Nixon for God's sake as president. You can imagine yeah. what the popular opinion was about Vietnam and uh, conflicted in an interesting time that produced interesting movies and interesting nominees. Hollywood has the reputation these days for being liberal, but you think about it, and it's still not open to any kind of controversy. I remember everybody freaked out so badly when uh, Michael Moore won and he raked Bush over the coals yeah. in his speech. That was like this big deal that yeah, he, pissed everybody off, too. It's like you can't uh, – for, for a lot of liberals, they're surprisingly conservative still. Mm -hmm. He was booed. He was booed that night, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Michael Moore, yeah. I loved his speech. He said, shame on you, Mr. Bush. Shame on mm -hmm. you. And he's been vindicated after all these years. And he got booed for his trouble. He got booed because there's always this, you know, to me it's fake as hell. It's like every other thing the Oscars do. It's totally fake because they pretend like, oh, it's just supposed to be about the movies. Don't use this to, you know, forward your political agenda. Well, to me, the Academy Awards are a political agenda. You know, they're a... Uh, you know, a triumph of, you know, basically white, you know, male, straight male dominated America. You know, mm -hmm. that's what they are. The status quo. The status quo. So that is a political statement in and of itself. And you have millions and millions of people watching. 
why wouldn't you use that opportunity? I know it's it's a con, you know it's it's controversial. People don't agree. It shouldn't be. Some people don't want to think about it. But I've always thought that the very best movies have a political. All the all the very best movies have a political component. For me, you can always find what the writer is trying to say, even if they have to express it within the the realm of a genre of a gangster movie or a film noir or whatever, they're expressing a political point of view uh, um, that they want to get out of the system and they know the only way they can get their message across is to is to cloak it in an entertaining story. <laughs> right. And they did with Chinatown. There was a political message in Chinatown. There's a political message in The Godfather 2, certainly in the conversation. The parallax Lenny. view was the, the Lenny, exactly, Lenny. Parallax view was the same year in 1974. Um and once again, the Towering Inferno sticks out like a sore thumb, <laughs> not fitting in with the rest of them. No, really, because, you know, there is that, like I've said so many times, I know you get sick of me saying that, but I think there's that like, that 20% of the Academy who really just wants a movie that's just going to be fun to watch and, and everything is wrapped up at the end and uh, where they can see a bunch of old stars getting work. That's it. And, it's really about the actors once again because yeah. all of those actors in that movie are all connected to huge networks. Yeah, I mean, it's mm-hmm. an amazing cast. You have to give it credit for that. It's just too bad it was all an amazing cast that was completely wasted. I mean, how do you how do you take how do you take a movie with Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, William Holden, Faye Dunaway, Fred Astaire, Jennifer Jones, O.J. Simpson, <coughs> <laughs> my God, um, and and not get a Best Picture nomination if it makes a lot of money and it's kind of a hit. I mean, that's that's pretty big networking there. Yeah, yeah, and, and it money, did make a ton of money, and it was a it was a pop cultural thing at the time. Yeah, it tried to take itself seriously by casting William Holden. <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> William Holden. And, they, they, that movie reminds me of like the uh, the Oceans movies, you know, or the those big sloppy Steven Soderbergh movies with all the big stars in them. You know, they just make these movies so everybody can collect a paycheck and everybody can make a lot of money, and you know, they're not trying to change the world; they're just trying to entertain and and keep everybody working. The throwbacks. Because There's William Holden had peaked uh, 15 or 20 years earlier. It's not as if he was getting any prime roles anymore. I mean, he would love to have a paycheck. So well, why not network. take a, take a junk movie network? where you just, you know, phone it in? But he net- Network was what? 76? Oh, that's right. Network came two years after that, right? So I'm wrong about that. Yeah, no, maybe that, maybe that brought him back. Maybe Towering Yeah, it could have, yeah. And that's how he got Network. You know? Talk about a movie with another political point of view, Network. I mean, that's what the 70s, I think... Partly, I think the the studios wanted these these young writers and young directors uh, who could who could connect with um, with the youth audience. But they, when they realized that they were making these po- political statements with their movies, they sort of uh, quashed that. When they realized that there was this this spate of movies between sixty nine and seventy six or seventy seven, they were having these really pretty radical ideas um, infiltrating the films. Um, they they. They put a lid on that. Well, listen to the movies that weren't also in the Oscar race that year. Day for Night, A Woman Under the Influence, um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, Blazing Saddles, you know, Young Frankenstein, too. Right. How yeah. could Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles be in the same year? It's amazing. You know, that's just incredible. And The Great Gatsby, lest we forget, <laughs> with Robert Redford and uh, Mia Farrow. Great Gatsby is kind of funny because on paper that looks like a slam dunk Oscar movie. I mean, it was written by Coppola, 
had Robert Redford in it. It was based on classic literature. It, it was from Paramount. It had all of the things going for it that you would just assume would have made it a huge Oscar film, but it just kind of landed with thud. Yeah. It, it wasn't that great. It, it was. I think it's better than its reputation, but it. it, it I think it was kind of disappointing. It had the unfortunate, um, you know, albatross of being that before it ever opened. Like it was right. being publicized and hyped to death. And some movies, Godfather 2, can live up to that and some can't. But it couldn't. It's pretty dry. You know, they made all this big deal of casting Mia Farrow. And as much as I love Mia Farrow, I don't think she was right for Daisy. Mm. Um, I don't think they had any chemistry between them particularly. Um, he's a great Gatsby. Great Gatsby. He's the perfect one to me. He's the guy. Yeah, and the Law and Order guy, what's his name? As good as Nick, I can't remember what's his name. Sam Waterston. Yeah, yeah, he's really mm-hmm. good as Nick, but uh, mm-hmm. Redford is kind of well. Yeah, I don't know. Gatsby's kind of a hard character. Gatsby's sort of a, a dull character anyway. So Redford actually fits him pretty well. Yeah. He's just not that interesting. And it, it just didn't have the director. It didn't have the directing. It didn't have the the style or the or the oomph to it that uh, this, that the, uh, the movie that were nominated for Best Picture had. Yeah, it didn't stand a chance, and thank God that they did that. This, nowadays, they might have picked The Great Gatsby with their taste mm. being so... Weinstein would have distributed it, and it would have been, <laughs> it would have been all over the it. place. Oh, with 10 nominees, it certainly would have. Back and, in the and day... I think even The Murder on the Orient Express probably would have come close to getting a Best Picture nomination, because I don't... Offhand, didn't it get, like... Seven or eight nominations altogether, Murder on the Orient Express. <laughs> and it was Sidney Lumet, so, you know, right. it's not like it's directed by, an, you know. Not to beat a dead horse or anything, but back in the day, there's no way Jennifer Lawrence wins for that movie. There's just no way. It took a Weinstein to make that happen. Um, right. She would have been an also-ran in a year like this. Um, at any rate, Armacord won Best Foreign Language Film back then. That's how great yeah. of a year it was. Armacord was in the race. Yeah. Um, the other one was Earthquake. Was up against Terry. I guess Earthquake wasn't the good one, and Terry Inferno was. Someone <laughs> in, had joked about it being um, Shake and Bake, <laughs> the Shake and Bake movies. Because <laughs> one. The was... main difference is the cast. They're, all, they're almost they're, they're identically bad movies, but Terry Inferno has uh, has a better cast. Chuck Heston, I guess, is your is top build, but he's he's no Paul Newman or Steve McQueen. Actually, I just realized something. You know, um, when you said that, has it ever happened that a director, um, director's movie has been nominated twice, in, you know, for two movies in the same year? Mm-hmm. Um, Francis Ford Coppola produced The Conversation and he produced Godfather 2. I don't think Steven Soderbergh produced those other movies, but I'll have to look that up. If so, um, Coppola has to be the record holder there. Mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah, it could be. For writer, director, mm-hmm. uh, for producer and director. God, I think he even co-wrote. I think he even co-wrote. He co-wrote The Godfather, didn't he? Or let's mm-hmm. see. Yeah. Right. And he definitely wrote The Conversation, right? Yeah, that was his creation from top to bottom. Although I have to say, Walter Murch's uh, contribution to the conversation is invaluable, and he he was he was he was at the peak of his career then too. At the same the same year, he was he was. Uh, editing the conversation he was doing the sound mix for for american graffiti and then he went on to win two or three oscars i think walter Murch. yeah merch is on record as saying or i mean coppola is on record as saying that um he pretty much shot the conversation and then had to go and run off and and direct godfather too and oh so God. the uh, merch was pretty much in charge of the whole thing i read that I, I have 
I have just, a book of uh, Walter Murch interviews, and he was talking about that. They uh, Coppola was they 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 ran out of time because they had to change cinematographers, and they got delayed on the conversation. And then Coppola had to run and do Godfather Two. It was he, it was committed. Everybody was ready to go, and so they had they had to stop filming the conversation without filming ten or twenty pages of the script. They didn't even finish filming everything that, that, that and so they thought, what are we going to do with this? And Coppola told Mersh, just make what you can out of it. Hmm. I just, I have to say, I'm, I'm a little bit stunned to find out that Coppola wrote the entire script to the conversation and co-wrote the script for The Godfather and produced both movies. So hmm. um, Soderbergh did not produce either Aaron Brockovich or Traffic. Um, so yes, uh, uh, the difference between them is that Soderbergh got nominated for two movies in director and, and mm-hmm. um, Coppola did not. But still, it's pretty fucking amazing. God. It is. It's incredible. I don't think anyone else has ever come close to that, have they? Not only not even having done it, but having done it in such a spectacular fashion because the conversation in The Godfather 2 are are as are equal to the China, to Chinatown. I mean, they're on the level of excellence as Chinatown. Can we just pause for a moment to look at the director lineup? Fran- Francois Truffaut, Roman Polanski, Bob Fosse, John Cassavetes, Francis Ford Coppola. Mm. I mean, come on, 1974. Who do you pick? Well, Coppola took it. I, I, that's <laughs> yeah. a tough and, one. And it's hard to argue against that, but those, that's some pretty stiff competition, man. And then for Roman Polanski to come back all those years later and win for The Pianist is also quite mm-hmm. remarkable. Um, Even post-controversy. I mean, Chinatown at least had the benefit of coming before all of the shit hit the fan. Right. Um, with the rape thing. Whereas mm-hmm. Piano, he still had to contend with that. When I watched Chinatown this week, I tried to watch it. I, I've seen it so many times, but I tried to watch it this time as if I was... Had never seen it before. I was going to be. I was going to look at it and study the 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 framing and everything the way that I do a, a brand new movie because I I I didn't I didn't used to do that. And so when I first saw Chinatown, I didn't do that at all. I just enjoyed it. And so all the times I've gone back to to it, it's just it's been like comfort food to me. Mm. And but this time I decided I would go and really watch the way that it was filmed. The technique in Chinatown is absolutely superb. Mm. I mean the framing and the, the layers of. The way that, that we're following behind Jack Nicholson all the time, sometimes we're riding along in the backseat of the car when he's driving. The, the camera's in the backseat of the car. We're always looking over his shoulder so that he's, we're watching him watch. Whatever he's watching, we're watching him watch it. And so it puts those different layers so that it's not, not – that's why we fall for the story the same way he does. Mm. We're as deluded throughout the entire film as he is about what's really happening. Yeah. We see what he sees. Yeah. But it's not as if we're seeing it through his objective point of view, not like not the same objective point of view like the Hitchcock uses, where where you see the same thing that he's seeing. We're standing behind him. I mean, we're sta- always standing behind Jake Giddies. Right. You know? And the whole thing is, is about deception of what you think you see. Because mm-hmm. remember, in the beginning, he thinks he sees the man with the daughter, and he thinks that that's an affair, you know? And, and throughout the whole movie, you're he's making assumptions and so are we actually because we're following him based on what you see which the you know obvious message being you know what you see is not always what you know what is underneath what's really going on that that the movie is so much about layers you know will that shut everybody up 
<laughs> Are you guys still there? No, I was, I was trying to think of something <laughs> smart to add to it. And I couldn't. <laughs> but I love that about it. I was also quite, I mean, I've seen Godfather 1 and 2 so many times. I know all the lines or many of them. But this time I watched it, I was really paying attention to to, um, to Gordon Willis's cinematography. And the talk about shot setups in Godfather. I used to kind of zone out the scenes with Robert De Niro a little bit, like because I preferred the modern day Godfather story. Now that I'm older, I like both as much equally. They're funny. They're great. But, um, you know, the whole part with the staging and the actress and all that, it just, you know, it feels like it kind of goes on and on. But, of course, now revisiting it, it, it it's, it's absolutely essential and a great part of the story. But I just love the stuff with Fredo and Fredo's weird wife and going to the nightclub and that weird sex act that they're about to watch before Fredo, you know, blows it and says, you know, oh yeah, old man Ross, you know, brings up John that he knows Johnny Ola and, and that he, you know, was hanging out with Hyman Ross. As as well directed as both as all the Godfather as films are, it's not as if Coppola did anything really flamboyant in with his direction the same way that Fosse did, or even as much as, as not as flamboyant as Polanski. Mm. He really um was invisible. Yeah, to a degree, but but I did notice how beautiful everything was shot the, this time, you know. And mm-hmm. I know a lot of it was trying to mirror Godfather One in a lot of ways. Like they wanted that big opening scene, mm-hmm. um, the same kind of opening scene that was a wedding, and then there was a musical event. They really wanted to mirror the two movies to show how different they were, and so you had a lot of the same setups, shot setups. Uh, right. So in the wedding in the first movie was all about family when the wedding in the second movie had ter- turned into something almost like a PR event, like a publicity thing where you're 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 accepting the big, huge check from the politician. So it's a it's a corporate affair by the yeah. time you get to Godfather 2. And I feel like he's more artful in Godfather 2, specifically with shots like when when Michael Corleone shuts the door on Diane Keaton, that whole sequence. It's so icy cold. There's nothing like that in Godfather 1, which is sort of lively and, um, you know, there's a lot of action sequences. And, and, you know, he has that great virtuoso, you know, end where where he's murdering all those people, you know, up up against a baptism Mm -hmm. in Godfather 1, which is such a great scene. There's nothing in Godfather 2 that matches that. but there's a coldness, you know, and there and and he does stuff visually with that coldness that he doesn't do in the first one. Oops. It's so dark and moody compared to the first one. Like even the weird house that they live in in Nevada is like this dark, you know, awful, cold. I know the, the, the leaded stained glass windows has like a spider web um lead the the leaded glass panes have a spider web effect to them. Yeah, and it's always cold and everybody's in dark clothing yeah. and there's no light, there's no the children are kind of depressed, you know, it's just, it's just, just visually he tells it so beautifully. Even if you didn't, weren't paying attention to the story, you could just tell just by looking at it, how different those two worlds were. He probably had more freedom to do exactly what he wanted with Godfather 2 than he did. He was constantly battling Robert Evans for in Godfather 1 because Evans was the producer of Godfather Part 1. And, but, but for 2, since Coppola was producing himself, he didn't have to fight anybody about what he wanted. Yeah. Do exactly what he what he pleased. Think he wasn't afraid of getting fired every day. Yeah, right. People like Coppola, you know, his ambition was so large. Nobody was ever going to tell him what he couldn't do. You know, and yes, he never quite equaled that level of genius with The Godfathers and Apocalypse Now and The Conversation, all those, you know, early movies in his career. He never quite 
got there again. But I just I love that he didn't stop trying. You know that he's continued. I love that in his late career he has dialed it down and done personal small projects that are getting shit on mostly by critics who should be ashamed of themselves. But he's <laughs> he's making pictures that he wants to make without a lot of fuss, not a lot of fanfare, and it's a whole new phase of his career. I know that. Um, his buddy George Lucas keeps talking about making small personal films. Well, Coppola didn't talk about it. He just went and did it. You know, right. he's mm-hmm. not he, he's not trying to prove anything to anybody. He's just doing what interests him. I, I, and right. I, whether it's winemaking or cooking or whatever, you know, he's mm-hmm. that's the American thing is the expectation that you just have to keep outdoing yourself. Every 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 movie that you do after the movie after. Your- previous movie has to surpass what you've done before but but i mean people should just realize that there are peaks and then you can decline from that peak and you can still be pretty high up the mountain even if you're not at the peak anymore and but i but people are disappointed that he doesn't have another he might not have another godfather or or apocalypse now in him but he's still making movies that are more interesting than anybody else is making than most anybody else is making well yeah a a lot of directors would be happy to have a movie like the outsiders on on their filmography i mean that's a great great movie it's not the godfather and it's not apocalypse Mm -hmm. now it's not this epic tale of of america but it's a great stylish wonderful movie all by itself and rumblefish rumblefish he's like meryl streep in that way he's one of these great and scorsese for that matter like you know their own past is their worst enemy in terms of how people view their future work because he he has so much to live up to already how how do you top apocalypse now I mean, that movie is mm-hmm. like, and how do you top Schindler's List? And how do you top Schindler's List? And how do you top mm-hmm. Sophie's mm-hmm. Choice if you're Meryl Streep? Mm-hmm. How do you top mm-hmm. that? How do you top mm-hmm. something that is as good as it gets? Um, I think that Coppola is admirable for staying vital and interesting. You know, he he's you know we have to give him some credit for being a, a, a muse and an, in, an inspiration and a force behind his daughter. You know, so mm-hmm. Coppola, I give him credit for that. You know, he's he's I think he's really, you know, motivated her to do some daring work. And, and by turn, I think that she inspired him to start making weird movies, you know, unusual movies and taking risks artistically mm-hmm. and not doing it for the Oscars, you know. What's so great about the fact that The Godfather is all about family, the theme of The Godfather is all about family, and Coppola, too, is all about family. So many people in, in, in the cast and crew of his films are family members. You know, I, I didn't realize or I had forgotten until I read this uh, book a couple of days ago, and these interviews with Walter Murch, that David Shire did the score for the conversation. And I guess David Shire must be Talia Shire's husband, right? Yeah, I guess so. I didn't. I haven't it even was, looked to confirm that, but I'm pretty sure that it is. And he had David Shire compose the music before the movie, before they even shot a single a frame of film. He said, "I'm going to give you the script, and I want you to consider the script as if it's the as if it's the book of a really strange Broadway play. And I want you to write some themes for this play that hasn't been produced yet, and we don't have any lyrics, but just write some themes for it, and then we'll play these. Then we'll play your music on set while." while it's being filmed so that people can have a rhythm to go with. And who knows how much, how, how much that affected the overall effect of the film. But I mean, it's not something that is usually done. Usually the composer comes in the very last minute. Walter Murch says, usually the composer comes in the last couple of weeks after the movie's already in the can. He's the last person to see the movie. And they, he comes in and sort of spray paints the movie with his score. And they went, they had the opposite approach with, with the conversation. And that great, the great theme 
in the that uh, in the conversation is amazing the, the how effective it is. Yeah, you know the thing about him is that if you take all of his movies after Apocalypse Now, if you take The Outsiders, Rum, Rumblefish, Peggy Sue Got Married, um, One from the Heart. One for, I love one from the heart. I, I like I like Cotton one Club. From the heart. You know, and Cotton that, Club. If you take those movies and you put them on any other director, you know that's a great selection of films right there. Without mm-hmm, yeah. the problem is, is his other movies are just you know stratospheric. They're incredible. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why it's so hard to look at his other movies without you know without seeing them as less so. And the sad thing is, I think two sad things when I think of. Francis for a couple. I think of Godfather Part Three, which I don't think ever should have been made, and the fact that he hasn't made a movie since 2011, and it doesn't look like that he has anything on the plate on his plate for to make any more movies. And I wish he would keep making them. Did his last one even get a proper release? There was that horror movie that he made, and it got dumped on at festivals. Twix. And I think it kind of played sporadically here and there, but I don't know if I think it got an actual. Uh, release. I can't even think of what the title of it is right now. Twix. I never. Yeah. Twix. Yeah. Twix. I never tracked it down. I never saw. It. Did you see it, Craig? No, I didn't. I, I I heard terrible things about it, but then I'd heard terrible things about the previous two movies that were actually quite terrific. So mm-hmm. I don't trust any, what anybody says about them. But you were talking about family and 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 Shire, and there's a really neat moment in the in the Godfather part one commentary track where he's um, he's talking about his sister Talia and saying that he thought she was way too beautiful to play the, the bitchy <laughs> sister character. Um, he, and, and yet he gave her the part anyway and let her do it. And, and, and it's just, he's still blown away by how good she is. And it was just sort of neat to see him talking that way about so her. And sweet. yeah, totally. That is really sweet. God, she's, she is great. She's great in both of them. Um, and then, of course, she went on to have her own success with Rocky when it turned right. around and won. Mm-hmm. Or no, I guess that was before. No, that was no, right no, after. No, right after. That yeah, was after the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Can I tell you my Francis for a Coppola story by association? So sure. back in um, middle school or high school or something, I sort of had a flirtation with a man who is now – was an NPR reporter and has gone on to do other things. But back in high school, I hung out with him because my – best friend went to high school with him and we used to go back to his house at Bel Air and go swimming. Well, his father is the guy in Godfather 2 who, you know, is is giving the in the um hearing, you know, where he's like Mr. Corleone, you know, with the glasses, the, oh, really? the old yeah. guy. Um that's his dad. And he's really good oh, friends with the Coppolas. So one day we were over there swimming and um Ellie Coppola was there. And Sophia Coppola was there and we were all, and she was like 13 and she had braces on her teeth and we were all swimming and cause Ellie Coppola is really good friends with hit this guy's mom. Mm-hmm. So I got to hang out with her and, and hear their stories about the Godfather, but that was, that's it. That's my only God. That's my only story. Oh, and then my sister went and worked on the outsiders as an extra. She took her car out there and drove out there and hung out with all those guys making, filming the outsiders. Kind of funny, huh? Yeah, Closer amazing. than I'll ever get. I know. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I, I remember Sofia Coppola was doing press for Lost in Translation, and I tried to convey to the publicist that I had had that afternoon with her, and it was just one of those embarrassing things where you just wish you could take it back because it sounded so stupid. It was like she must hear that all the time. Oh, I remember your dad used to come in and get groceries from our market. I saw you one time, remember? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's when really it's bad when you expect the other person to remember it as fondly as you do. Of course, they have no 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 <laughs> yeah. no reason to. That was just you're like, oh yeah, you're famous, and I'm the, just a worm. Think about stories <laughs> like they're great stories, but uh, sometimes I think we feel like we still we t- we feel self conscious telling these stories, and we we rush through them, and we don't give them enough enough context. It's re- you know if you if you think about it, it's really it's really neat the way that um the the this connection that people have. The, their unexpected connections that, that people have to each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that that guy that I knew, I'm sure he's got tons of stories and pictures, and you know, he probably hung out with Francis Ford Coppola. He probably went like for to instance, one of their weddings or something. You know, it just it, it just came to my head when you're talking about uh, hanging out at their swimming pool. Um, you know, the the, the day that, uh, Robert F. Kennedy was shot, he had spent the day at the at the home of John Frankenheimer. At the swimming pool, John Frankenheimer drove Robert F. Kennedy to the to the to the convention center that night when he was oh shot. Oh my God! Wow, wow, that's incredible. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know where, where I ran across that factoid, but I just that was just something I, I ran across recently. Some of the uh, looking at movies from the '60s and '70s and the connections uh, to trying always to find the way that I do, the, trying to find what, what it is about the political situation and the turmoil in the country at the time that might have helped foster some, um, this amazing era. Well, I think, it, uh, yeah, a lot of it is, I look at it, I look at the 70s and then I look at the 80s and 90s and now, and, uh, you know, it, there's no denying that the, the war and the cultural revolution that was going on at the time had an impact on not just the popular movies, but the movies critics responded to and the movies the academy responded to i mean in all of these movies you see strains of feminism mm-hmm. you know you really do you, there, there are some movements that haven't yet made themselves known i don't think like the gay and lesbian movement had you know was nowhere to be found well, well a little bit maybe with cabaret uh-huh. but it was it really wouldn't play out till much much later maybe post 80s even but um but, you mentioned several times about the fact that the that, uh, the Manson murders took place in what, 1969, I think. How 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 much that hit the Hollywood community because it was in their neighborhood. They were they were neighbors with with people who lived up in the hills, right? Yeah. And so there and the movies that came out uh, right after that are so full of paranoia. Yeah, There's so much paranoia in the movies of the early '70s, and so much despair, as you said earlier, despair that there's nothing you can do. That things are so messed up that there's nothing that anybody can do to fix it anymore. Because we're right. coming on the heels of, of Martin Luther King and, and Robert F. Kennedy being shot in in '68, like within months of each other. The party came to an end. I mean, I lived through this. This was my childhood when I was yeah. hitchhiking in the '70s as an elementary school kid. You know, mm-hmm. and my sister and all of our friends. You know, if you watch Bad News Bears. Um, Tatum O'Neill's talking about the pill and going to concerts, the Rolling Stone concert when she's 11. <laughs> she's 13. She's, I think she's 11 in the movie. Isn't she? Yeah. Is she 11? I thought she was 13. The character's 11. I don't know if the actress was, but, you know, she's talking about, you know, the pill, sex. Uh-huh. And, and when I was a kid, that was pretty normal. It wasn't like it is now. And I'm not saying what happened wasn't tragic. It was, you know, with, with Samantha Geimer, I'm not saying that, that that wasn't, you know, a rape. It was. It was a horrible, horrible rape. It's just that the added element of the post-Oprah generation of how we look at child abuse now has colored that event in a way that it didn't wasn't really colored now. But what, what those two things did do, 
those two high profile events, you know, go to a party, get in a hot tub and get raped and, you know, have a beautiful wife, Sharon Tate, waiting for you at home and be eight months pregnant and get stabbed in the stomach by the man's creepy Manson family where mm. you nobody could ever fathom. Right. And you know what? I think a lot of people in the middle America begin to begin to conflate the fact that all these terrible things are happening and we're having all of this sex and violence in movies. And they don't see that the movies are a response to the violence and the sexuality. They see it. They see the opposite thing. Right. They think that the, they blame the movies for the sex and the violence. And they still do to this day. And so Hollywood sees that and not wanting to alienate their audience. They self-censor themselves and they start trying to tame things down. You know, they, with things like the production code, the production code, I guess, ended in 1968, but immediately after that is when the MPA, MPAA began, when they began to clamp down on what they would allow to be shown in movies because they didn't want to be associated with the things that were happening in the country. They didn't want to be blamed for it. Right, right, sure. Um, I, I happen to be reading um, In Cold Blood right now, the Truman mm -hmm. Capote book, which is just, you know, what can you say about Truman Capote? What, are, what an incredible writer he is. I mean, the, the little tiny details in this book are so amazing. Everybody should read it, whoever wants to write. But, like, he'll say stuff like, you know, Mr. Clutter, who was for, who was about to, you know, who was living the last day of his life, walked to the edge of the pond. You know, it's like, know. oh, God, this is it. This is it. But that story is a lot like how the Manson murders must have been to Hollywood because the Clutter murders, you know, really were as un unfathomable as the Manson murders. Like when they when they were trying to figure out who would have killed Sharon Tate and they were looking at Roman Polanski and stuff, they could not have ever imagined it in a million years the weird story that would unfold of how it was that those teenage girls happened to be at that house that night mm -hmm. killing her so sen senselessly. It's the same with the with the in cold blood murders. It's nobody could the cops. It took them. A, they actually had to have a guy, a, you know, a guy in the in the prison tell them that he knew that the, the people who had done it, the two guys who had done it, because he that was unfathomable that somebody could just go to some tiny little town in the middle of America, peaceful, you know, the kind of town where nobody locks their doors, they leave their purses in their car, everybody knows each other, they all go to church, and they're all friendly, it's the most popular family in town, and just one night they get tied up and shot in the head. Because the, uh, the standard police procedure is to look for motive. And for these kinds of crimes, there is no motive. Right. There's no motive. And that's what is scary about them is they're so random and it could happen to anyone at any time. And that's why that's where the paranoia comes from. But without a motive, the cops are lost. They don't know where to they don't know where to begin. Right. And once you take that information into your head, once you get that there's a Manson family. And that there's mm -hmm. Charles Manson. I mean, I remember being a kid and being so afraid of Charles Manson when I went to sleep at night, you know, that Charles Manson was going to come and get me. Even though he was in prison, it was the scariest thought. And it, to this day, remains one of the most frightening things that ever happened in America, that, 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 could have, that he could have taken these, like, nice, normal girls and turned them into these weird, murdering psychopaths, stabbing Sharon Tate, smearing blood all over the, the house. Helter Skelter. In the middle of the night in the posh, you know, Hollywood hills. You know, people thought that they were safe. And if they can get to them, you know, they can get to anybody. It really changed, you know, not just how people look at, you know, their own safety. It changed how we looked at the movements, the 
the sexual revolution and the, you know, the hippie movement and freedom and peace and love, it really changed all that. It, it sprayed cold water all over it mm-hmm. and it, you know, the fun stopped for a lot, you know, to a degree it did. That was what, you know, the seventies still kind of raged on after that. Well, there was a disco era, but that was, that was, that was almost sanitized compared to, to what was happening in 19, in the late sixties. The disco era was almost like candy, Candies inst- compared to the 60s. Right. And things would change. But, you know, I have to just see it also from a feminist perspective and see how different things were then and when they stopped and why they stopped. But back then, you know, when you had Ellen Burstyn winning for um, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She wasn't there, by the way. Neither mm-hmm. was De Niro. It was at the time when people just didn't show up to the Oscars. Um, that was a great part, Alice. So was uh, Jenna Rollins in A Woman Under the Influence. Yeah. It took, mm-hmm. it took a, a man to write and direct it, her husband, but um, I can't think of another movie quite like it in terms of being sensitive towards uh, the, the problems of, of, of being a woman in the, in the modern world. Right, me either. It was and so she's fantastic, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't want to take it away from Ellen Burstyn because she was great in that movie, and it's a wonderful movie. But um, it's sad, a little, a little bit sad that Rollins doesn't have a, an award of her own. Oh, I agree, and especially in that, I, I just love. I'm, I've been revisiting a lot of movies that have strong female leads in them, just to see, you know, how far it'll take me. And the, they're very few and far between. Last year, it was like there were three or something like that, but. Um, Jenna Rollins in that, you know, in that performance, really, you know, Cassavetes was never afraid to just tell the truth, but he also had a high opinion of her. You know, she wasn't just a sex doll. She wasn't just a wife. She wasn't there to prop him up or his ego up. She was a whole human being, and he was intrigued by her internal world. And it comes through in the film, actually in a lot of his movies, but in that one specifically, I thought. Yeah, he creates this world that she can completely shine in. You don't really notice him. His fingerprints are all over it. And and Peter Falk actually gives a really great performance in it, too. But it's her moment to shine, and he just lets her have it. And and it's it's pretty remarkable. You don't run into that kind of thing very often. You don't. And you don't run into actresses like that, and you don't see performances like, I mean, um, roles like that you just don't movies aren't made that way anymore women aren't made that way anymore in hollywood no she's allowed to be flawed but she's not evil or anything like that she's her character you spend part of the movie wondering whether she's whether she has a problem or if life is just a problem and it's actually a little it's more it seems like it's a combination i think she does have some mental issues but really it's life that's weighing down on her i think they still do make movies like that occasionally but but instead of being honored they are almost um shunned and overlooked because i think talking about jenna rollins um and in gloria uh, mm. gloria reminds me a lot of julia with tilda swinton they're two women who are mixed up with some really shady characters and how they how they deal with it and cope with it and their um, their complex lives. But while Gloria, I, I'm sure I'm looking trying to see if it was nominated for an Oscar. I'm sure that it was. Um, yeah, that's Julie true. Julie was completely overlooked. Right. No, it's true. Movies like that tend to be fringe now, whereas back then in the '70s they were more mainstream. They were, you know, these actresses were so formidable that people wrote mm-hmm. movies for them. You know, like uh, Jane Fonda and Faye Dunaway, and you know they were. 
such formidable actresses, even Glenda Jackson, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you just, you, you know, you see it now with the gay community, um, how they're just not taking any shit anymore. They don't care if people make fun of them. They're just, they're drawing a line and they're, you know, they're protesting. And that's what women did back in the seventies. You know, and unfortunately, in, in the ensuing decades, it became embarrassing or somehow unattractive to be considered a feminist, and no one wanted to be a harpy and a shrew. A and feminazi. A feminazi, and it died down. But, you know, you have to fucking stand up. You have to. You have to say we're, we're drawing a line. These labels like feminazi are created by the media, and the media is owned by the corporate interest. And the corporate interest became, uh, right at the end of the 70s, they started to control the studios too. And so I'm sure that people were still writing movies like this, but the studios weren't producing them anymore. They didn't want to do that anymore because I don't want to be like a conspiracy theorist about it. But, but we're talking about the conspiracy theories in Chinatown and the movies of the mid-70s and how some of the movies exposed some of that, what was going on. And you've got to think that some of the corporate interest, like in Network, you know, the Ned Beatty character Network, wants, to, wants that not to be, not, wants people not to know about that. So we have to stop talking about it. We have right. to stop making movies about that. And so word comes down from on high, we're not going to make any more movies like that. Even if you think about it in non-conspiratorial terms, it's it's easier to make money off of conservative, you know, placid, calm things. There's the turmoil is not a, a reliable way to to consistently make money. Whereas it's easier to do things that are nice and and pleasant. Well, so mm-hmm. we can use that to quickly seg into to the wonder because that's a great segue. When you look at the two different Ben Affleck presences in both of the the movies that bookended the year, which is To the Wonder, Terrence Malick, which was Ebert's last review, and then Argo, which was Ebert's number one movie and the best picture winner of the year. You couldn't have two more Polar Opposites movies if you tried. I mean, they're so different, and Affleck himself is so different in both films. That concludes part one of episode 26, and you can listen to part two, which we talk about Um, Room 237 and Terrence Malick's To the Wonder. Uh, I was here with Ryan Adams from Awards Daily and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com and my name is Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com.